hottest heat wave of the summer is expected for much of the country today. Five State of Queensland, where floodwaters have turned cities into islands. They're experiencing drought where they never experienced it before. They're experiencing these downpours of rain that they never experienced before. One of the enemies that we'll be fighting at this conference is cynicism. The notion we can't do anything about climate change. What we have done is announce an emissions reduction target for Australia of minus 26 to minus 28 per cent from 2005 to 2030. That puts us ahead of Japan at minus 25 per cent, ahead of Korea at minus 4 per cent, ahead of China at minus 150 per cent, and comparable to drought. Climate change is getting worse, and you're going to notice it. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. My name is Jake Morecambe. We're back for the new year and a brand spanking new host, Leah. Hello. Hello. I feel like with Ellen last year, we kind of took the sustainability train and learnt a whole lot. And you're starting from scratch or have you already got some of that sustainable mentality? I do have a little bit of a sustainable mentality, but I feel I do have a lot more to learn. So I'm looking forward to co-hosting the show with you this year. And for our first show back, how well equipped are not only we, but our everyday systems to deal with the effects of climate change? And we're going to start in the desert lands of central New South Wales, in a place called Broken Hill. Driving into Broken Hill, it was as though it was in the middle of a a thunderstorm because there was a locust plague that had descended upon far western New South Wales. This is Anika Molesworth. Anika is a PhD student in agricultural science and a farmer in Broken Hill. The wipers were going backwards and forwards trying to get these locusts off our windscreen and they were everywhere. As soon as we opened the car doors and stepped outside, there were just thousands of locusts jumping all around us. It was incredible. And myself and my two young brothers, we were delighted. We were running around catching locusts for the rest of the afternoon. You were delighted? That is like my worst nightmare. (laughs) I like the outdoors. (laughs) Anika and her family moved to Broken Hill when she was in high school. I actually grew up in Melbourne, but my parents purchased our our back sheep station in the year 2000. For Anika, it was an easy transition. I absolutely loved it, going from an all-girls private high school in Melbourne where it's, you know, ties and blazers to the wilds of Broken Hill every school holidays where I had horses and motorbikes and I could, you know, walk for an entire day and not see another person. Um, It was incredibly freeing. It's got this wild, harsh uh, landscape that surrounds it of red sands and, you know, sapphire blue skies. Um, You know, I thought, oh, wow, you know, these incredible creatures, these, you know, these vast open plains. I can see the horizon. I can see a billion stars in the night sky. It was, it was incredible. 
From the moment Anika and her family moved to Broken Hill, she knew that this was where she was meant to be. But things quickly took a turn for the worse. We bought the farm at the start of the decade-long drought. So we were tipped headfirst into the, the harsh realities of Australian agriculture. Our first 10 years was drought. It was watching the landscape shrivel up. Um, there was no water. We had to completely destock. We were watching shops in the rural towns close, people moving away. And it sort of really struck a chord with me. Um, it made me aware of how interconnected different components of the farming system are such as when the rain doesn't fall, less vegetation grows, you have to sell your stock for reduced weights. Uh, you know, less money in the farmer's pocket means they have to search for off-farm employment and top the shops and schools and towns, you know, they, they lose people. And I thought, you know, I, I want a future in agriculture. I want to be a farmer, that's my dream. But the reality is that droughts are going to become more frequent and more intense in that part of the world because that's the reality of climate change that we are facing. You know, they're looking at 50 plus in terms of temperature. This is Brent Jacobs, a research director from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. And again, it's not just that, that one day of extreme temperature, it's the fact that, yes, we have a heat wave that might last three days in Sydney and be high 40s, they might have a heat wave that lasts a week and is in the low 50s. Um, so it's, you know, it's really substantial effect that it has on people. If you've ever visited places like Dubai um, in the Middle East, you know how hot it can be and it is oppressively hot and it just never stops. And it's not just the heat Anika's worried about. For the far west of New South Wales, it's going to become hotter and drier. There's going to be more frequent dust storms. The future prediction is that there's going to be less water available in the future. There's going to be a change in the vegetation that is out there, the species, which means there's going to be a change in the agricultural practices out there. This is the real challenge for farmers, that because of climate change, everything they do, their practice of agriculture, will have to change they'll have to learn how to adapt and be more ready for the prospect of more frequent climate events. Because if they don't, they risk losing everything. But Anika thinks farmers put up a fair fight when it comes to climate change. What I love about farmers is that they have this never-say-die spirit. They are incredibly resilient and determined to make a go of it. And I think that's because farmers, they always have their eyes on the horizon. They're always looking to, you know, what can we do next season? What can we do to ensure our property is the most sustainable for the next generation? You know, you give a farmer a pair of pliers and some wire and they can fix almost anything. When perhaps an urban person thinks of a farmer, they think of a, you know, an older gentleman with an Akubra kicking dirt around. And that's actually not the image of farmers in Australia. The farmers are doing these incredible things, like the technology they are using blows my mind. I mean, I fly drones every day to monitor crop health. Uh, you get in a tractor and there's five monitor screens and a DVD player. 
like there's some pretty cool stuff that's happening in agriculture that a lot of, of our urban cousins don't realize. There's also in the media it portrays farmers as very conservative, that they are stuck in the old way and they don't accept the science of climate change. Whereas I think that's nonsense. Any farmer looking out the kitchen window can see how the climate is changing, how their environment is changing, and they know what they need to do that day to you know, better prepare themselves for these adversities. You as an agricultural scientist looking at a place like Broken Hill and you've got these predictions to say, you know, temperatures could rise and this could really create an issue for the agricultural industry there. What's the first thing you're thinking in your mind? What, what's step one to try and remedy this problem? Part of the problem is that because we're dealing with native vegetation, we actually don't know how many of those species will react to changes in the climate. The major agricultural industries in Broken Hill are sheep and cattle grazing for meat. So understanding the native vegetation is important because that's what's feeding the livestock. The salt bush, the, the shrubs, the grasses, the flowers, unlike highly managed agricultural systems in the eastern part of New South Wales, where we actually know a lot about the species that grow in those environments and what their tolerance is, we know very little about the native species out west. Uh, and so as a consequence, we're, we're never sure where a tipping point might be. So we can't be sure that a particular species will experience a temperature that stops it from breeding and producing seeds. Now, if that happens over a long period of time, that species will start to disappear. And again, that, causes, that can cause bigger changes in, in things like food chains. So the first thing I'd say is we need much more information about how a lot of those native species are going to react to changes in climate. And why don't you think we have this information already if we're such a buzz in terms of the impact of potential climate events? Western New South Wales is not necessarily the focus of research and development. So the focus is largely on the industries that are the most important and make the most money. So we have done a lot of work on industries like wheat, uh, like cotton, like rice. We spent a lot of research dollars there and we, we've actually much better adapted those industries to changes in climate. Livestock industries, less so. This is where farmers have to think ahead about what works best for them and their farm. And for Anika's family, that meant choosing the right sheep. My parents run an African breed of sheep, Dorpers, and they're a meat sheep. So they have hair like a dog or a goat that they shed. They don't have wool. So they are in this credibly low maintenance sheep. You don't need to shear them. You don't need to do a lot of the things that you do with traditional European sheep species. They are very well suited to dry conditions because they come from a similar African environment. They always look very full and healthy, even in the middle of a hot, dry summer. But to be fully prepared for what's to come, having the right sheep is just one cog in the machine. You also want to, you know, diversify income, I guess. So if you do have an unfortunate event, a drought, a flood or whatever, you are not heavily reliant on just one income stream. Some are looking at bush tucker foods like quandongs and wattle seeds. You know, farmers are trying to tap into different markets to spread their risk. Is it? This thing of though you have to see how it plays out because you might have different things that you're trying to do to prepare for events. But what if a really, really bad long heat wave comes along that really smacks you across the face? 
Like, will you necessarily be ready for that? Uh, I think you you try to be as ready as you can. And farmers, you know, have a history of just getting on with the job. You know, every day there's a new challenge thrown at them. A farmer just has to go, yep, <laughs> that's what I got to focus on today. I'm just going to get on with it and fix it. In regards to the climate change story, we have to make sure that the story that is getting out there is the right story. And that's all of our responsibilities. That's, you know, farmers' responsibilities. We need to speak up and saying, you know, well, this is what we're actually experiencing and perhaps we do need, you know, some help. And that's also the responsibility of people who live in urban environments to investigate what's actually happening out there in other areas of Australia and to get the real picture. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. Today, we're looking at adapting systems to climate change. And we're going to stay in Broken Hill for now because climate change affecting the agricultural industry is one thing, but also living in these houses, which continue to get hotter and hotter as the outside temperature gets hotter. So in Broken Hill, I wanted to know, are the houses that they live in designed to deal with this heat? So let's go back to Anika. What is your house made out of? It's a quite a modern house with a corrugated iron exterior to fit in with the uh, the local mining corrugated iron theme of the region. And what is that material like? Is it good in terms of keeping you cool in the summer and keeping you somewhat warmer in the colder seasons? Not really. No, there could be a lot more improvements made to the house to make it more green and to make it more energy efficient, that's for sure. And what would those um, improvements look like? Uh, you could double glaze windows so you you know don't get as much heat radiating into rooms, um, you know, insulation in the roofs and also, I guess, growing more vegetation around the garden. Um, so you've got a shadier microclimate around the house. The trees are enormously important to deal with the heat. That was Robert Rochema, who's professor in the School of Architecture at the University of Technology in Sydney. And he's talking about utilising local vegetation to cool down the houses in Broken Hill. And the other thing is, because we've got, a, let's say, three main problems related to climate. Mm-hmm. That is flash flooding because of heavy rain, bushfire and heat. So... To mitigate that problem, you really need to create more water spaces, more urban green spaces. And the other thing you might do related to the houses themselves is to create a buffer on top of the house or on the facade, which is green. It does two things. It keeps your house cool. So if it's hot, you have isolated your house, basically. And the second thing is it takes out the peak of the rain. When there's a, a rain happening, what is that buffer, though? The buffer is, for instance, if you green roofs on every house in a new neighborhood, most of the rain will fall on the roofs. So it will stay for a while on the roof. What do you mean by green roofs, though? Well, there's, uh, a green roof is not only painted a green, but a green roof is a roof that contains plants and has a little little bit of soil on it. So Oh, like as in how they do it in... Isn't it in the Netherlands or something? Don't they have the... Yes, they have like they have, those, they have like... those roofs. 
But the most famous old-fashioned dating from history uh, examples are actually from Norway and the Faroe Islands and, and, and those places because there it's really cold. Yeah. So in winter, they need to have some extra isolation to stay warm. And that's why they chose to, to implement those, those green roofs. Over here, it works the other way around because it's so hot that this green roof will actually have a cooling effect on the. On so the you house. think that would actually that that is a really good solution for Australia in the heat? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's absolutely. so interesting. And it does two things because it also takes the water out. So it takes the water because the plants need the water. So mm -hmm. the water will stay on the roof for a while, and then the surplus will dis will be dispatched in a very slow manner. So the big flash flooding. You don't, you don't have any more. No, you don't, because it's absorbed. And it's beautiful also, because oh, you can beautiful. you can grow plants on it, you can grow flowers, you can do only grass, which is also a beautiful side. One of the main problems with this is obviously the costs, because a green roof is more expensive than an ordinary roof that you just put on. But I think if you imagine that people have to live in those circumstances of 45 or close to 50 mm. degrees sometimes, they would really enjoy a cool house. How cool is that? A greenhouse. But if you think about the landscape of Broken Hill as well, it's a semi-arid land with very few canopy vegetation around. But I wanted to throw this idea by Anika and see what she thought. We have very infrequent uh, rainfall we have very little rainfall so actually growing enough vegetation to change you know the climate of a region uh, is probably a very big ask for that area of Australia although saying that uh, there have been great examples of the past in the Broken Hill region where committed people have changed that environment when the mines came to Broken Hill Broken Hill is obviously a mining town famous for silver, lead and zinc. The rapid expansion of the mines means that a lot of vegetation was cleared away. Uh, a lot of the scrublands, livestock was brought in, rabbits uh, plagued the regions. And if you look at photos from the 1930s of around Broken Hill, it looks like the moon. There is not a scrap of vegetation. It is windswept. There were horrific dust storms that blanketed the town. But the local people and the mines realised the damage they had done to this region and they set about creating the Regeneration Reserve, which now surrounds Broken Hill. And because of this commitment from local people to change the vegetation, to change the landscape to what it originally was, a healthy, vibrant ecosystem, they pretty much stopped the, the dust storms, they brought the native wildlife back, and it was recognised as one of the first environmental movements in Australia where people have actively got together to, you know, do tree plantings, to fence off areas, to stop grazing. And that regeneration belt still surrounds Broken Hill. Uh, it's still an attraction for people to go bushwalking out there. Do you think that that would mean if you were to put more green environments and microclimates around residential properties that they could survive in the same way? Look, possibly. I think the people in Broken Hill, they are extremely aware of what the climate can do. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very challenging environment to live in. And because of that, Broken Hill has really utilised its number one natural resource, the sun. 
the far west region, the Broken Hill region, is known to have one of the highest levels of solar radiation in New South Wales. Broken Hill residents, you know, quick to snap them up and put them on their houses because we are so blessed to have, you know, blue skies pretty much all year round that we can capture the solar energy from the sun and we can convert that to power. And so we can run air conditioners all year round as relief from the heat and do it in a mindful manner that we're not actually damaging the planet. We're using the sun's energy. So Jake, we're focused on heat waves and drought, but another thing that really throws a spanner in the works for Australia is flooding, which we don't really talk about too much. And I guess when it comes to dealing with more frequent flooding events, the, the way that we prevent them or the way that we respond to them is completely different from that of what we do with drought and heat waves. So now this is where we kind of delve or dive into the world of hydraulic engineering. Engineers tend to be a little bit more risk-taking than scientists who adhere more to the concept of, well, if we don't do anything, we're not going to hurt anybody. This is James Ball from the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney. James was one of the authors of the Australian Rainfall and Runoff Guidelines, which are the guidelines used across the country to estimate how bad flood events will be. And to give you an indication of just how in detail these guidelines are, they took eight years to write. An engineer will have to make a decision, even although they don't have adequate information to define all the risks, all the problems associated with that particular issue. The do-nothing option is not a viable option. And although a lot of time went into writing these guidelines, what James is saying is engineers have to act fast because floods tend to come on pretty quickly. However, the problem in acting fast means you have less time to plan, and less planning makes for potential problems in the future. We are solving problems now that the generation of engineers 20 years ago created by solving the problems that the earlier generation of engineers created. And we will continue to do that. But as time goes on, engineering is becoming stronger and more thought out. Engineering and the management of floods. Interesting problem. (laughs) We know a lot of things that can be done to mitigate the impact of floods, but a lot of it also comes down to how much the community is prepared to pay to mitigate that impact. If we throw in the climate change scenario where magnitudes of events are going to change, because most flood mitigation works are already designed on a probability analysis, what is of greater concern is the magnitude of the hazard rather than the probability of the hazard. What that means in essence is how much bigger is my flood going to be? To figure that out, James would look back at flood records over time. He'd look at rainfall, a particular area, what the trends of rainfall were. He'd also look at how they dealt with flood events in the past, where they had catchment systems in place, meaning where the extra flood water would flow to. But he'd also take a look at the future rainfall predictions. 
The Australian Research Centre of Excellence for Climate System Science published research in January this year that says with a raise of just 2 degrees Celsius in global average temperatures, Australia will see an 11.3 to 30% increase in rainfall from extreme precipitation events. These sorts of predictions would mean not only more rainfall, but more severe flood events. So with all of this in mind, what does James do with all this data? So let's imagine you're on a team of engineers, builders, whatever, and there's a new town and you're part of a project to build this new town. And this place is, given its geography and everything like that, it's a place that's prone to flooding. Let's also say, over time, this place is just... The floods are going to get consistently worse and worse and worse. In this hypothetical scenario, you, as the hydrology engineer, what's ticking in your mind first? What are you thinking about in this initial part? The first is, what is the risk to the people that will be living in the town? And what can we do to mitigate that risk? And the second thing is trying to design systems that are or can be expanded with time as the risk from flooding changes for whatever reason. What are these systems? Well, systems we can be looking at uh, could be your levee banks uh, around the town to protect the water. And what's that? A levee bank is a mound of dirt designed at a certain level so that the flow from the river doesn't enter the town. The Dutch call them dikes. Let's say that option one of it could be you put a levee around the town so the water goes around it. What if that option fails? What would option two be? Generally, the way a flood protection system works, they work by having some physical structures in place to try and manage flows. But at the same time, you are running with models of what that flood event could look like. And if it looks like it's potentially going to overtop the levee, you will start evacuating the people. And Ningen was an example of that. Where's that? West of Dubbo. Right. And so what happened in this instance? In this particular case, uh, one subcatchment area with very limited rainfall gauges got a very heavy downpour. It was unexpected depth of rainfall and depth of flooding coming down the catchment onto the town. The town had already been in flood for the best part of two weeks and this extra rainfall was just enough to overtop the levees. Have we learnt a lot from historical flood events in terms of how we, um, I guess, have these systems in place to deal with floods? We are continually learning from historical events. Every event uh, teaches people and ourselves something new. Even if it's just when we had to undertake some evacuation, what worked with the evacuation, what didn't work. If we've got uh, designed a levy, how it worked, did it work to design or not. So there's a, every time there is a flood event, we learn something new 
that can be implemented in the next uh, during the next event. Do you feel like it's just this constant like wild goose chase to be like, well, this system works now, it will work then, and this is the best option? The only way we will get a system that is inherently going to work over all times is if we stop things happening. And that's an impossible situation. The big question comes in, however, is if we do it now, we have a massively over-designed system for the current flood regime. If we do it at the end, we're admitting the system has failed all the time. At the other hand, an over-designed system ends up with the current generation has a higher level of flood security than the future generations. And so what's your option then? What can you do then to solve that problem? We cannot solve the problem. All we can do is mitigate the outcomes. James Ball, Associate Professor in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Colin Sustainability. You can also find us on iTunes. More info as well on our website at 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Leah Summerglue. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Bye.